Great. Thank you very much, Linda and Chris. Here we go then. Week four of James, a faith that works. Uh, you can catch up on everything in the usual place. So the question today, who are my favorites? Let's pray together. Father, would you help us as we come to your word? We come with our own agenda so easily. We come with our own agenda so subtly. Is it weaved into our lives that our own thoughts and our own opinions masquerade in our hearts as true faith? Rescue us from what we cannot see. Save us from what we do not know. Open our hearts where they may be unintentionally closed and teach us this day how to walk in your way everlasting. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're in uh, chapter uh, 2. But our launch pad, if you have it open in front of you, is those final verses there in chapter uh, 1 that provide, as it were, a, a springboard, a kicking off point for us as we get into those verses that uh, Chris read to us. Let's kick off in verse 29 of uh, James chapter, what, sorry, verse 26 of James chapter to 1. Those who consider themselves religious. Now, the word religious is, uh, from my perspective, a horrible word. Uh, The Bible only uses it twice, uh, or or two kind of separate occasions. James uses it here, and Paul uses it, uh, kind of agreeing with me, if you like, in a very negative kind of way. The idea of uh, religious activity, our own striving, our own effort, our own adherence to certain rituals and routines, giving us credit or access uh, towards God. And so the Bible, if you like, is a, is a whole polemic, a whole argument from beginning to end against religion. Whatever else the Bible says, ironically, it says that you cannot by your own efforts, you cannot by your own way of doing things, however diligent or however perfectly you carry out those rituals, get yourself uh, to God. James uses it with a very different kind of nuance. James talks about religion, and maybe we'll talk a lot more about this next week. Um, uh, James uses religion as a way of life that comes out of a heart connection with God. And we'll see that as we go through uh, the remaining chapters of this book. So James uses the word in a very different way. And I think it's important that we understand that as, as we come to it here. Those who consider themselves to be living a way of life that honors God, to be living a way of life that comes out of a heart connection with God, and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceives themselves and their religion, their way of life, the faith that they profess, and this will mirror what he will go on to say in chapter 2, is worthless. True faith, James is saying through all of these verses, will produce real fruit. If you have real saving faith at work in your life, then you'll keep a tight rein on your tongue. 
You won't gossip. You won't slander. You won't talk inappropriately about others. You won't uh, talk maliciously. You won't pull people down. You will keep a tight rein on your tongue. And then if that's not bad enough, verse 27 is a challenge for us. True faith. What is this true faith? Religion, a way of life that honors God, that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. One, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Two, to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. True faith will produce real fruit and that fruit will be compassion and mature purity of heart. Uh, And that in so many ways is exactly what we see worked out in the life of Jesus. An overwhelming compassion and a life that remained unpolluted, untainted, unmarred by the ways of the world. And for James, as we've been saying, if there's anything that links all of these sermons so far together, it's this. For James, it's all about Jesus, surrendering everything to Jesus, above all else to honor him and his way of life. And that's where he launches in now, at the beginning of of chapter 2, about being gripped by the glorious Lord Jesus, or being gripped by our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. My brothers and sisters, this is verse 1 of chapter 2, believers, livers, in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. That he is the one who makes sense of this way of life. He is the one who inspires this way of life. He is the beauty, the wonder, the goal of our lives. To be gripped by his glory and captivated by his beauty. If we have faith in him, James is saying, if he is in us, we will display his glory. We will honor him, which means we'll hold on to our tongues, which we, means we'll have a compassion that's beyond what we see around us. That means we'll stay, remain unpolluted by the world. And now in one other example of how we might be gripped by Jesus, and that's by not showing favoritism. Gripped by our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord, must not show favoritism. So one example then of this faith in God being radically worked out in our lives is that we will not, we will choose not to show favoritism. And then we get this illustration there in those following uh, verses. Here it comes. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and you say, that's a really nice ring, and I do like his clothes. And a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat, like you're going to find a good seat in here. Here's a hard pew. You're welcome to sit on it. But say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Why is favoritism a problem? Why is it ugly in God's agenda? Why is it not a way of life that brings honor 
to Jesus. Favoritism insults Jesus, firstly, firstly because it discriminates. We insult Jesus, number one, when we discriminate. Have you not, verse four, discriminated among yourselves? I'm making a choice as to how I will respond to someone. I am discriminating between two people based on a certain criteria. I am welcoming someone because I think they are like me or because they're the kind of person I would like to be or they're the kind of person I would like to be associated with and because they're like me or because I'd like to be associated with them they make me feel safe and so I want to join them I want to identify myself with them and so I welcome them with open arms and give them a seat of honor which of course would be a seat next to next to me or next to you one a seat next to ourselves Uh, And then someone else comes in and they're not like us in our perception with our agenda. And because they're not like me, I feel less safe with them. Because they are not like me, I'm not sure I want to identify with them so quickly and so readily. So I keep my distance from them and therefore I make decisions around my behavior in order to be clear to myself, maybe to them and to everybody else, hey there's a certain distance going on here because I'm not sure I want to identify with them quite as closely as I might some other people. Uh, they, uh, they, they don't uh, fit into what I would aspire to be maybe or they're even a threat to what I aspire to be. The common denominator is that we are measuring by our own standards. The common denominator is we are choosing our own agenda to drive our behavior. Uh, And all the way through, James has been saying, you can't do that anymore. If you're giving your life to Jesus, if you're laying down all for him, then it's only his agenda that matters. Which possibly is why in verse 26, 27 of chapter 1, James uses examples where people can never repay. Look after orphans that can never repay you. Look after widows that have, in that culture, nothing to give you back. Look out for people that will not in any way be able to reinforce your own agenda. Lay yourself down for those that can give nothing back. Where do we treat people differently? Or if I can be so bold, where do you treat people differently? In your family? In your workplace? In the church? In your neighborhood? Where do you make decisions where your own agenda is driving the agenda? Where do you make decisions based around how it relates to you? Secondly, we insult Jesus when we judge Not only have you discriminated among yourselves, but you've become judges. And so we're saying in our, in our assessment of people that some people are more deserving than others. 
Of course, it's always the wrong criteria. Very consistently through the Bible, God says the problem with you men and women is you judge things by all the wrong standards. And there are stories to a penny that illustrate that we're so quick to judge by all the wrong standards. There was an experiment carried out um, by a, a well-known magazine company. And uh, a pair, uh, two people went out with a bicycle into the public arena. And the two people weren't together. They kept themselves separate from one another. The person with the bike would go up to a stranger and say, would you mind looking after my bike for a minute? Then he would walk away and his accomplice, a couple of minutes later, would come and try and steal the bike. And then they wanted to to observe... Who kind of protected the bike for a stranger and who didn't care less and let it go? A security guard, for example, didn't care less and just let it go. Uh, wasn't going to put up a fight at all. Some ordinary people, whatever ordinary looks like, were, were willing on some occasions to put up a bit of a fight for the bike that belonged to a stranger. Uh, and, and then this article observes how they asked a couple of people that were living in the park. And uh, 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 would you mind looking after the bike? And the couple that lived in the park were, were the most uh, vociferous in protecting a stranger's property. Uh, and the article went on to expose how in, in the way we would write the story, we, we would have written that differently in our general culture because of what we assume in our minds about certain people based on their, uh, on their situation, be that economic or, or social or, or whatever we might understand it uh, to be. Uh, and then they interviewed the couple that were living in the park. And the couple that were living in the park said, the thing is, pe- pe- nobody trusts us. Everybody approaches us with the assumption that we are cheats and we are liars. And and we see that mimicked in our world again and again, how we make judgments on all the wrong things. And as we'll see towards the end of this section of James chapter 2, when we judge like that, we could not be any further than the Jesus that we proclaim and seek to serve. Any judgment we make is saying that not everyone is equal in the image of God. I, I, I love this verse in Proverbs that kind of sums it up for me uh, with, with such clarity. Whoever oppresses the poor, whoever keeps the poor poor, whoever makes judgments shows contempt for the poor. No, 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 no. Shows contempt for their maker. In whose image they are made, created, and loved. Whoever is kind to the needy honors God. So we insult Jesus when we discriminate and we insult Jesus when we judge. And thirdly, we insult Jesus with our evil thoughts, says James. Uh, Discrimination among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. Why are our thoughts evil? Because they're driven by our selfish motives. What are we putting our trust in in those moments? We are saying that status, we are saying that uh, human wealth, we are saying that human honor, we are saying that, uh, um, that the way other people perceive us, we are saying that our own comfort, we are saying that massaging our own ego is more important than loving someone because they are in the image of God. And it's strange, isn't it? Jesus lived and the rich man went away sad. Yet most Christians long to be rich. 
Jesus told a funny story. I think it was funnier in Hebrew, uh, or Aramaic rather, than it is in English, about a rich man trying to get through the eye of a needle. And Christians generally want to be rich. Isn't it weird? No, obviously not. It's perfectly normal. It's disturbing. It's disturbing. So why are we so focused on the rich? This is James's point, actually. Why, why are we so focused on the very people that he will say in just a moment have become, in his culture, and in many ways ours, whatever we understand as rich, the uh, oppressors. And he launches into a rant. Verses 5 to 7 is a, is a rant. Uh, James kind of gets carried away, and he says, he's been saying, look, you shouldn't show favoritism, because it's ugly, and it doesn't honor Jesus. And then he kind of spills out into this rant, and kind of goes, oh, go on then, if you must show favoritism, if you must be biased towards somebody then do this. You're so messed up that if anything, you should be showing favor to the poor. If you want to be biased, if you want to have favorites, if you want to show favoritism, then make sure, says James, it's to the poor. Listen, he says in these following uh, verses. Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world, to be rich in faith. If there should be any bias, it should be towards the poor that God has chosen. God appoints the poor to be recipient of His kingdom. God appoints the poor to be rich in faith. Or am I not understanding what these verses say? We see this bias towards the poor, the oppressed, the underdog, right through the whole of the Bible. If it was just James ranting here, we could blame it on last night's pizza and say he's just lost perspective for a moment. But what James uncovers is the perspective with which the Bible has continually and consistently presented itself around. Not only does God appoint the poor, His attention is on the poor. Way back in the earliest writings of the Old Testament, when they're organizing their life together, This is what we read. If there are any poor Israelites in your towns when you arrive in the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. haven't got time this morning, but there are loads of laws in place to stop poor people getting poorer and to stop rich people getting richer. But also through the whole of Scripture, this theme again and again and again where God's attention is on the poor, And the way that we treat those that we might regard as poor being a direct reflection on the way that we respond and treat him. If you help the poor, you are lending to the, to the Lord. To the Lord. And again in the Psalms. This whole theme repeating itself again and again. Give justice to the poor and the orphan. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. 
And just in case you want to get rid of the Old Testament as being a bit kind of lost in bygone era, which of course it isn't. That was a joke, tongue-in-cheek and stuff, totally lost. Jesus says, listen to this. Jesus says, look, when you respond, when you respond to people that are poor, it's, it's like you're responding to me. So however you respond is an absolute direct reflection on how you think of and respond to me. I'm immensely challenged by these verses. Because so many times we will make all kinds of judgments and decisions and good proper choices and blah de blah de blah de blah And Jesus says, look, it's dead simple, really. If you love me, you're going to love both the rich and the poor. God's attention is on the poor. And tremendously and excitingly, God acts through the poor. Joseph and Mary take their baby to Jerusalem for the dedication service. Uh, And it says very simply, and you could almost miss it, that they were going with a pair of doves or two young pigeons. What does that tell us about Mary and Joseph? They were dirt poor. They were dirt poor. They had hardly any pennies to rub together. So it's true. God chose the lowly things of this world. God chose those weak things, the despised things, and the things that this world would say are not up to much to nullify the things that are. And so James gets into this gigantic rant and effectively says, go on then, have favorites if you want to. Be biased if you want to. See if I care, James says. No, 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 no. But make sure if you have favorites, it's to the poor. Is our church biased towards the poor? Turn to the person next to you. 60 seconds. Is it? Go. Do our programs, do our buildings, do our services, do our prayers, does our advertising, does our style show a bias towards the poor? And there's a more penetrating question. What about you and me personally? You see, verse 27 back in chapter 1 that kicks this whole section off, in my opinion. says, the way of life that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. We're called to look after. I don't know who's got a Strong's Concordance on their bookshelf. One. Fantastic. Two, maybe. I'm sure you can do all this online now. Strong's Concordance online, anybody know? It is, is it? Online, free access. Do a study 
of this word in James 1.27 called look after. And you will discover that it's used in all kinds of places in order to capture a sense that it is our responsibility to go, find, seek out, and take responsibility for. This is not if you're unfortunate enough for a poor person, whatever that might be, to bump into your life, then do something about it. The obligation in that word goes right back to the book of Genesis. We're at the end of Genesis, when God is making promises to Joseph and his family, God says, I will look after, I will seek out your family, I will go to them, and I will take responsibility for their needs. It's the same words that's used when God sends Moses to look after the Israelites, which meant he had to leave his own safety and go back to Egypt in order to take responsibility for the well-being of the Israelites and lead them out of slavery into the promised land. It's the same verse that same word that Zechariah uses in Luke chapter 2 when when Zechariah is prophesying about the coming of Jesus and talking about the rising sun from heaven, Jesus himself, who will come and look after and take responsibility for his people. It involves movement. It involves incarnation, being one with, getting involved with, sharing life with. It's a million miles away from I'm supporting a charity that's helping orphans and widows and people in distress. Now Simon B's on the front row, so I've got to be really careful now what I say, because supporting charity is like really cool, you know, and if you're going to support anything, Samaritan's Purse is really cool. It's the place to give all your money. But, but this is asking for something different to that. It's about a personal taking responsibility for, a personal seeking out. And if you notice what happens in James chapter 2, the first couple of verses, that these people come into their meeting. Where was their meeting most probably being held? In their house. So, so reread it. This is like two people. You're welcoming these people into your front room. There's a, there's a personal drumbeat in these verses. That, that is way deeper than the church caring for the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized. The, the, the church with its wider parachurch organizations, however brilliant they do that, care, caring for widows, orphans, and so on. It's about a personal responsibility. It's a personal calling. Is your life biased towards the poor? It's a really hard question to answer, I think, if we're honest. What does it really mean for Jesus to be identified in those people we would regard as poor from our perspective? And that will be different for each of us here. What does it it mean? That Jesus sleeps in the park. That Jesus is not sure where the next meal's coming from. What, what does that mean? And James is saying, look, this is a personal thing. It's at a personal, it's at a heart level. Talk about a change of heart. 
It's at a heart level that we're called to honor Jesus. And then this section in James comes to an end uh, with a brilliant reclaiming of the truth of the gospel. Verse 8, we all stand in desperate need of God's mercy. Uh, I love verse 8. It's laced with sarcasm. I love it that James was sarcastic. It means that I can be and you can be too. It's there in the Bible. If you really keep the royal law, what he's saying? As if you really keep the royal law. Pull the other one, it's got bells on. If you really love your neighbor as yourself, like pigs fly, you are doing right. What's everybody hearing? Everybody's hearing is that we're not doing that. We're not loving our neighbor as ourselves. Far from it. Sometimes we have a job loving ourselves as ourselves, let alone our neighbors as ourselves. And, and this massive kind of weighty dose of sarcasm. No one's doing this, which is the whole point of verses 9 to 11. If you mess up one bit of the law, you've messed the whole lot up. Every single person stands in desperate need of God. Every person, you and me, are utterly poor and broken before God. We all deserve to be outside his favor. And in a sense, that's where the whole story could end. But James takes it right through to its gospel conclusion because mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy will triumph. The love of God that we don't deserve, the love of God that we can't stop, His grace, His love at work in our lives brings the story to an end. And James's point is this. How can you expect mercy in your life but go and act as judge? How can you expect God to have no favorites but for you to decide and make decisions around who you trust, who you draw near? That's awkward. Who you trust and <laughs> tell people not to call me at work. Um, interesting thing about loads of people call you on Sunday mornings, especially the calls you don't want because they think you're going to be in, don't they? We should have put them on loudspeaker and gone for some call center. You see, with the poor, it's so easy to act as judge, isn't it? Hey, they made wrong choices. They might not do with what I give them what they should do with it. It's their fault, isn't it, anyway? And I know those are real issues. I'm not as young as I look. So I I get all the struggles and how it works. But James is saying, isn't it a good job God doesn't act like that with us? And go, isn't it their fault? Didn't they make wrong choices? Haven't they got themselves in that mess? It's a good job God doesn't act that way. Therefore, verse 12, therefore, what's it there for? It's to draw us back to what we should be doing. Therefore, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Live in the light of the truth that mercy has triumphed over judgment in our lives. And so if we want to honor Jesus, if we want to serve him, 
We want to give him honor and glory by who we are and the way that we behave. And James says, look, it's dead simple. Don't show any favoritism. And make sure you go way beyond with people that can't pay you back, like orphans and widows. And we might have a long list of people in our culture that that have no ability to respond in a way that we might want them to in terms of anything in return. The way we respond in those moments is a mark of the reality of the faith that's within us or the reality of a faith that we haven't yet found. Sally's going to lead us as we respond.